Conversations with Daisy Jones. Conversations with Daisy Jones. Conversations with Daisy Jones. Conversations with Daisy Jones. Hey, let's talk a while. She the community voice with a big old smile. If you want that truth, don't touch the dial. If you want that truth, don't touch the dial. Community resource for number one. She's the best when it's all said and done. So go ahead, call on the phone, man. You're live on the mic with Daisy Jones. So let it not miss you, yeah. Better than the magazine, bringing life to the issue. Having these talks that'll bless you. Every conversation will address you. Every word tastes good like blessed food. This show gon' bless you. So get on the phone, have a conversation with Daisy Jones. Let's go. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Daisy Jones. Welcome back to the conversation. I know you're having a fantastic day because we are alive and I am grateful. So no matter what we're going through every day, we're alive. We have another opportunity. So welcome to the show. You know, this show is all about inspiration. It's about information, empowerment, and some entertainment. And so I have a special guest today. I'm on location in Hawaii. That's right. I'm in Hawaii, and I'm grateful to be here because I met a gentleman, Ronis Dural, heard about his story, and I wanted to bring it to you. Ronis Dural served eight years in prison, wrongfully convicted, but he was exonerated, and we want to hear his story. So, Ronis Dural, welcome to the conversation. Thank you. I'm glad that you're here. Great to be here. I'm glad that you're here. So, let's just jump right in. Um, I heard about your story and it's close to my heart because working with the reentry program and finding about people who are wrongfully incarcerated and even when they come out, we work to have help them get uh, reconnected in the community. But I want to hear about your story and how all of this started. You are a Navy veteran. Yes. Kind of fill us in on how what happened. Well, I was a, in the Navy. I did about nine years. Uh, I had deployed on Operation Enduring Freedom. I had received a medal for saving a sailor's life. You know, my career was on the rise. Mm -hmm. And so I returned back from Operation Enduring Freedom and I was told that I had to go um, to like another part of the pier. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand why. And so they wouldn't tell me what was going on. So I talked to the officer who was escorting me. He said, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but when you get over there, they're gonna arrest you. And I'm like, for what? And then he told me for sex assault. And so I'm confused mm. thinking like, you know what? So I get over there and the police, um, they told me they had to take me in. Mm -hmm. They didn't even cuff me really. They said it was bogus from the start. These other That's police officers. That's what they said to you. That's what they said to me. They patted me down and they put me in the police car. They let me use my cell phone all the way to the police station while I was talking to my wife mm -hmm. and trying to figure out what was going on. And this was this is this was here in Hawaii where they arrested you when you came in. Yes. So, you know, you get arrested. You're still trying to figure out what's going on. I don't have any idea about the charge because I don't know what's going on. So after I get arrested, I fell out, and then I started the the court process. I had an attorney. Um, and I had went through the motions, right? They say, if you're innocent, you talk to the police, you testify at your own trial, and then you, sh you don't have anything to worry about. But me, knowing I didn't do anything wrong, 
I did everything they said you would do if you're innocent. Mm -hmm. I spoke with the police officer. Mm -hmm. um, I testified at my own trial. There was no evidence against me. It was her word versus my word. And that was enough to send me to prison for 20 years. Wow. Um, in the allegations, she claimed to not to even know how old she was. Mm. She said she didn't know if it was day or night. She gave no specifics to the allegations. Mm -hmm. So what they charged me with was a, a sex assault within a two-year time frame. Over a two-year period of time? Yes. And there was no way I could defend myself. Because I was in the Navy, I was deployed, I could get out the sea. I could have had any notice, I could have defended myself. Mm -hmm. But they gave me no notice, so it's pick a day within this two-year time frame, which made it impossible mm -hmm. for me to defend myself. So, me being, you know, law and order, uh, I was a military policeman. Okay. Uh, my stepfather, he was a, a detective. So, I'm thinking that there's no way that I'm going to be convicted for this. Uh, the story was told, but never told the same twice. Mm -hmm. And I had so much faith in the system mm -hmm. that it wouldn't send an innocent man to prison mm -hmm. that I truly believed mm -hmm. that I wouldn't be uh, yeah. uh, convicted. Yeah. So, And you had a public defender. Yes. Who also believed you were innocent. I, I yes. read some backstory. He believed you were innocent. Yes. And he knew they had no evidence. Yes. And my mom asked me, she said, do you think we should get a lawyer? Mm -hmm. And I was like, why? Wow. Like, we didn't, I didn't do anything. There's no evidence. I told her there's no way mm -hmm. that I would get convicted of this. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you read what they had, there's absolutely no way I should have been convicted. And even though it was a public defender, I knew he cared about me. And I knew he was going to fight for me. He never said anything about a deal. He never tried to plead me out. He never acted as if he didn't believe me. Mm -hmm. So I had confidence that he would be able to get the job done. So um, I'm just living my life waiting for this trial to start. My trial started on in uh, July, right before um, my youngest daughter at mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. She had just turned two years old. And what year was this? This was 2003. Okay. She had just turned... Um, three years old mm -hmm. I mean two years old mm -hmm. so um, after we celebrated her birthday um, we went to the court room and we was waiting for the, the jury verdict yes I was still confident that I was going home and you know I was just sitting there waiting and then the verdict came in and I sit in there I stand up for the verdict and thinking I'm finna go home and I heard guilty mm. and when I heard guilty all I heard is my wife cry out. I looked back and she was clinching my three and my two-year-old daughters. And I couldn't hear anything else. Wow. It went like the matrix, slow motion. You know, the judge sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher. Everything was gobbled. Yeah. I couldn't, like, trying to get myself together. Yeah. I was handcuffed immediately and I was taken to the back. And all you hear about is what happens to guys who are convicted of sex crimes yeah. Yeah. Uh, in prison. Mm -hmm. So now I have to get my mindset to where I'm thinking they're going to have to kill me. Yeah. And so I get to that level to where I'm back here. Um, you know, mm. I'm, I'm hurt, I'm crushed, but I'm angry and I'm not going to be afraid. So 
just telling myself I wasn't going to be afraid. I'm not going to cower, and I'm going to just, you know, go out on my shield. If, if I get killed, I get killed, but I'm not going to be afraid. And so my first moments in the cell, I have a confrontation with a guy. Uh, I couldn't even see him. I walked in. It was dark. I saw a silhouette. He said something that I didn't like. I challenged him immediately, mm-hmm. and we didn't fight, but I knew this is it. Mm-hmm. This is how you're going to have to live your life. Wow. So um, the first year, it was the hardest. Um, every minute seemed like an hour, and every hour seemed like a day. And like I got to the point to where like, I don't even like telling people this because I've always been so strong, and I just telling the story uh, felt weird to me. Mm-hmm. But I got to the point to where I thought I was going to kill myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was sitting there, not thinking anything of it, and the thought ran across my mind to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. And Mm-mm. you know, I tried to shake it off. I'm like, no, I can't kill myself. You know, my kids, my kids. And then the thought came again, stronger, kill yourself. Mm. And I'm like, no, I can't kill myself, my mom. You know, I'm trying to talk myself out Mm. of it. And it was again, kill yourself. Mm. So I'm in the shower, I have a razor, and I'm crying. Mm. And I thought, I'm finna kill myself. And then, um, you know, my mom, you know, that was the strongest influence of my life ever. Mm. And she had always talked to me and always told me that uh, God would never put you through anything Mm. that you can't handle. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I called him on the promise. Mm. I said, you promised me Mm. you wouldn't put me through anything that I couldn't handle. Yes. And um, from that moment, I just heard in my head you got to hold on. The storm won't last long. Just keep your faith. Mm. And then I started feeling good. And I stood up. And now my tears was tears of joy. Because I didn't have the urge to take my own life. And I just started saying, thank you, thank you. And I was Mm. happy. Mm. And um, I never, you know, situations, it took me seven years from that point Mm -hmm. to be released on parole but that was the starting point on me and my journey Mm -hmm. up until then I didn't think I could make it you know I didn't I I used to have to live hour by hour like I can't make it 20 years wow and I say can I make an hour okay you can make an hour then it came to can I make a day Mm -hmm. yeah you can make a day but at that moment I felt at least some comfort that I just had to sit and be still mm-hmm. and wait. So after that year, I moved away. Um, they shipped me to Mississippi because I was in Hawaii. So now I'm shipped away from my family and I can't see my family on the weekends. So then the relationships get harder because you don't see your family every wow. You don't have physical visits. You don't have 15 minutes on the phone every other week. So this is federal prison then? No, it's, it's not state federal. prison? They form you out because it's cheaper to send you to a CCA prison than it is to, for them to house you. So they pay them to take care of you. CCA? 
Corrections uh, Corporation of America. You know, oh, that's privately owned, privatization, profit. Yes, it's off a of people's lives. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So I get to Mississippi and um, I'm waiting. I file an appeal. Mm-hmm. My appeal was denied, and I got my letter said that I had to do eight years mm. in prison, at least eight years. But I knew I wasn't going to parole because I was never going to say that I was guilty of something that I didn't do. Because so you would have to admit You would have to guilt. admit it, and I wasn't going to admit it. So um, I ended mm. up telling my wife at the time that, um, you know, it wasn't going to work. I didn't want her to sit there and try to wait wow. for me for 20 years with a two- and a three-year-old. And so I just um, wow. ended up ending the relationship. Um, it became contentious you know um, there's a lot of drama back and forth and uh, she resented me for because I divorced her Mm -hmm. because I tried to live inside because I couldn't live outside and you know uh, out of the whole situation I know I couldn't give her and I know I failed at giving her even the emotional support that she needed because I only cared about what I was going through. Surviving, right? And I didn't understand, I didn't take into consideration the fact that she had two young children. I was the breadwinner. Yeah. How is she going to provide? Right. Everything we had, you couldn't, you can't pay the rent, you can't pay, well, I lived in military housing, but you can't pay for the cars, you can't pay for this, you can't pay for that. All the money stopped. The military you know, they stopped my pay as soon as I got yeah. convicted. So yeah. she was left with two kids and mm-hmm. no direction. So and it destroyed, just, not, I shouldn't say destroyed, but it disrupted multiple people's lives. Yes. Wrongful conviction. Yes, I mean, it devastated, like, my mom. Um, one of the things about my lawyer that I have so much respect for mm-hmm. is when I got convicted and went to the back, he came back there and he asked me for my mom's number. Oh. And he said he wanted to call her himself. Yes. And to me, that showed that he cared. Yes. And he got her number and he called her. And I know that was a hard phone call. Yeah. And, you know, just hearing a mother, just imagining mm-hmm. what a mother on the other end of that, mm-hmm. that phone is like, I know it stuck with him mm-hmm. and it probably still sticks with him to this day. Yeah. Your mom... Uh, was in Louisiana, where you're from, or yes, somewhere else? Yes, she was in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And I had assured her that I wasn't going to prison. Yes. Don't worry, Mom. There's no way yeah. that you could be convicted of some stuff like this with no evidence. Mm-hmm. So um, just trying to live day by day. And prison is, is I, I say it's like a landfill. It's quiet until you step in the wrong spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was jumped. I had uh, my first three fights came fairly quickly mm-hmm. because you have to you have to establish yourself. You're being challenged. Yes, and I wasn't backing down from anyone. My first fight was over the TV. Um, I wanted to watch something. Somebody wanted to watch something else, and. You know, that led to a fight. My next fight was over basketball. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the last fight, 
I got jumped by 11 inmates. Mm. And that's when I changed my life. Is because I didn't come out with a scratch on me. Mm. Up until that point, I figured I've always been able to handle myself. Um, coming up in the South, you have to fight. And so I was comfortable in fights. Mm -hmm. But when I got jumped and I wasn't injured and everybody respected me after the fight, I knew it wasn't about me. Mm. I knew God was looking over me and I knew I was going to be okay. Yes. And that's when I put my fist down. I picked the Bible up. Mm. I started studying. Then I started reading my case and started trying to educate myself mm. and, and and help my own defense. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times we sit back and we put our faith in other people and we don't do any legwork yeah, yeah. to help ourselves. Yes. So I read the stuff until it made sense. Mm -hmm. At first it made no sense to me, mm -hmm. but I read over and over and over again until it made sense. And so um, I have a son, I had an older son at the time, and his mother and I had started back talking, Dawn. Mm -hmm. And she was just trying to help me out, help me get out. And so she found a, the Innocence Project. Mm. So she wrote me and she says, um, I think you should write these people and I'm going to do the same. At that time, I saw that the Innocence Project, out of a thousand cases, they might take 12. Mm -hmm. And so the, the chances of getting selected for your case was, it was slim. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote and she wrote and they decided to accept my case. Mm -hmm. So that alone took such a big weight off my shoulder just knowing you have somebody else fighting for yes, you. Yes. So um, all I had to do was do the time and I had other people out there doing the legwork, yeah. Dawn included. So come to find out, the girl who had accused me, we found out she married a guy five weeks after I got convicted. Mm -hmm. He was 29 and she was 16. Mm -hmm. So then it came to light that they had been caught in a sexual act before my trial mm -hmm. and the mother had told the prosecutor this. So the prosecutor knew that the girl was having mm -hmm. a sexual relationship with this guy. Mm -hmm. Then it comes out that her stepfather, which is this guy's best friend, mm -hmm. had admitted that he was in love mm -hmm. with the girl. I, I heard that in another report too. So I'm thinking, okay, we got this evidence. Let's go forward. And I'm thinking I'm going to get out, right? Sure. So this is now, it's two years in. So the the Innocence Project, it's about three years in when they filed their first brief in 2006. So, so, so you'd been in prison three years. Yes. Um, and that's when the Innocence Project picked you up. Two years. Two 2005, years. they took my case. Okay. And in 2006, we filed our first okay. brief. We didn't know what the stepfather did. We just knew that his best friend mm -hmm. had married her five weeks after I got convicted. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew that they had been caught having sex mm -hmm. uh, by the parents. So we took this to the judge along with all of the other, you know, um, the things that was wrong with my case. Mm -hmm. I didn't get a fair child, they violated my rights. 
Uh, they gave me no notice. How can you defend yourself for two years? Uh, there was like all the stuff that was wrong with my case that way. So they turned me down time after time after time. So every time you get turned down, I always remember just keep your faith. And I never wavered. And I just knew I just had to be patient. So um, in 2009, the Innocence Project sent uh, Jack Tremarco uh, to do a polygraph on me. Uh, Jack Tremarco, uh, what I came to, to learn, mm -hmm. was supposed to be the best of the best mm -hmm. to ever do the polygraph. Mm -hmm. I didn't notice at the time. They asked me, would you take a polygraph? And I said, yes, I'll take it. Mm -hmm. So he comes in, and I go to shake his hand, and he's like, do you know who I am? Mm. And he has... He had these laser eyes that looked like take a look through your soul. And I was like, no, sir. Mm. So um, he get to telling me about himself and telling me, like, listen, don't take this polygraph if you're going to fail it. You know, you're not going to beat it. If you take this polygraph and fail it, it's going to hurt your case. And, and I was like, I'm going to pass it. Yeah. And so I sat down. He polygraphed me. And plus four is passing and I got a plus 10. Oh, wow. And so when we was done, he shook my head, hand and he said, this this is huge for you. Mm. He said, I never helped anyone get out of prison and I look forward to helping you mm. get out. Mm. So after I passed my polygraph, they asked her, would she take a polygraph? Mm -hmm. So she came forward, she said she agreed. Mm -hmm. And while she was taking a polygraph, this is the biggest thing that came out of my case. She was telling the story, and what she did was use a situation that happened between her stepfather and his best friend, but put my name on it. Mm. And when um, Jack was listening to the story, he just asked her, and we're talking about who? And she was stuck because she was visualizing what they was using. So she was like, uh, um, and then she said, Nate. She said, Nate, who is Nate? My mom's husband. Mm. He did the same thing to my sister too. Mm. So I'm thinking, I'm definitely coming home yeah, now. Yeah. Right. We have this evidence. She just told on her stepfather. Mm -hmm. She told the truth. So we go back to the state of Hawaii and they send these briefs. The best friend admitted that he was in a mm -hmm. sexual relationship with her. Mm -hmm. I heard the recording of him yeah. admitting that, yes. yes. Then the mother admitted how the case really came about. Mm -hmm. the, the prosecutor told the jury that the girl went to her mother and told her mother that she was tired of lying to her about being a virgin, mm -hmm. and that's how my name came up. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't true. I heard that too, yeah. the recording, exactly. I, the actual recording. Exactly. Yes. So the mother, the girl thought she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so the mother pressed her mm -hmm. about who she was pregnant for. And then the mom named names. Yes. And she never even said my name. Mm -hmm. The mom said my name and the girl went silent and the mom took her silence as an affirmation. So you knew the mother? I knew the mother. Okay. I used to date the mother. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then when my daughter's mom became pregnant, you know, that's how that ended. But when she took that as an affirmation, her silence, 
she went to the police and mm. that was it for me would no. the one would the mother have had these ill feelings towards you that would prompt her to to, to keep pursuing this wrongful conviction because of some ill feelings she had towards you from a past relationship I don't the reason I don't think so because as a father if my child tells me something like that or uh, allows me to believe something like that you can't see other, anything else but what your child said right before I used to think because I didn't understand that she was sleeping with her stepfather and his yeah. best friend I didn't know any of this stuff so they want to know why would she lie or yes. why would she say this on you yes. and so the only thing I could have thought about at the in the beginning was it had to be the mother right mm-hmm. but when the facts came out no she was she thought she was pregnant and she didn't want to tell the yeah. mother that I'm having sex with your with husband, your husband and his best friend mm-hmm. so she allowed it, them to believe that it was me mm-hmm. so doing the innocence project investigation um, now everything's starting to come to the forefront mm. um, mm. the best friend he confesses um, the stepfather we found out that after the stepfather and the mother caught them in a sexual act the stepfather went back to the mother with the, the girl mm-hmm. and confessed his love for the girl in front, in of, front of the, the wife mo- the mother yes the prosecutor knew all of this before my trial the mother had divorced the uh, stepfather mm-hmm. during my trial we didn't know any of this so um, what the pic- picture they painted was why would this girl lie on him so the jury got to hear me a black navy man yes I didn't do it yeah. her a young local girl yeah. he did it yes and the jury was comprised of mostly local people. Was it um, a jury of your peers? What was the compensation? I mean, as co- a, co- co- how was it comprised? As a black person, you hardly get a jury of your peers in Hawaii. And, yeah. So I had uh, one black juror that was an alternate, uh, and my jury was just a local mix. And in these cases. It's so hard to believe that a young child would lie about something like this, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. what do the jury do with the information that they gave? Mm-hmm. The prosecutor gets up here and say, this Navy guy who already has a bad reputation, right, for the military Navy, they already think oh, Navy, Navy men guys, has yes. wives That's in every right. ports and That's stuff right. like that. Yeah. So, this Navy guy he over here and he did this to one of your daughters and there's no evidence that he didn't do it so the jury was stuck with that but when I testified I'm thinking like I answered every question yeah I did everything so this is what the prosecutor said about me he said he had an answer for every question that I asked him he's smooth he's a player don't let him play you the police detective they asked her about it. She couldn't say, oh, he was nervous. I caught him in an inconsistency. She said he was cocky and arrogant. That's what the detective said That's about That's what the you. detective said. Now, I don't know many people who are going to commit a sex assault and he's in jail and, and have to talk to the police and he's cocky and arrogant. I wasn't cocky and arrogant. I was confident 
that I didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm so the girl says that we had sex on the couch. It was a cloth couch and there was allegedly semen on the couch. So I'm thinking the 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 detective said, What if I tell you we have your DNA? And I said, I'll tell you you're a lie. Because it didn't happen. I know for a fact you don't have my DNA. But I guess you considered that as cocky and arrogant when it was the truth. Mm-hmm. So during my testimony, they never caught me in an inconsistency. They never had a got you moment. They never said, how can you explain this? It was just, she said it. Yeah. He must have did it. Mm-hmm. And the prosecutor asked the jury this at the closing. Why would she lie? Mm-hmm. And because I couldn't say why she would lie, yeah. I must be guilty. Because mm-hmm. I didn't know all this stuff uh, mm-hmm. at the time. So after um, we presented all of this evidence, um, we have a hearing. In the hearing, you heard the recording from the guy who married her. He gets up there mm-hmm. and he confesses. He said he first started having sex with her when she was 13. Mm-hmm. Right? They first started having sex at 13. And uh, the stepfather, he gets up there and they bring some sheriffs in here to intimidate him. So he's on the stand and he confesses to molesting both of his stepdaughters. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'm going home. Yeah. I allowed myself to believe that I was about to go home. Mm-hmm. And then they asked me to plead to a misdemeanor. And I was like, no. You know, that's the moment I lost faith in the system. Mm-hmm. Because up until that time, I'm thinking I got lied on. And I know the system is going to protect children. I have kids. I would want them to protect my kids. Yes. So I'm thinking, I just have to prove my innocence. Mm-hmm. And then it'll be okay. But once I brought all of this evidence. And this was when the Innocence Project yes. brought this evidence forth. Yes. Your polygraph test was brought forth. Yes. The recording where the man confessed. Yes. All of this. All of this. And then the guys got on the witness stand. After all that, they got on the witness stand at the hearing and confessed to the judge. Mm-hmm. And then the stepfather wrote a handwritten letter to the judge mm-hmm. and said that he lied on me at trial and that he was the one having a sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. But that still wasn't enough. The the person, the, the young girl did not, she did not retract. She never. The mother retracted though the, eventually, correct? The mother, the stepfather, and her actual, uh, the one she married, yes. they all came forward. Uh-huh. She tried to stick to the lie, mm-hmm. right? And everybody was trying to get it like, you know, Tell Why don't you just tell the truth? Why don't you just tell the truth? And you're going to speculate at this point why she wouldn't come forward. Mm-hmm. You know, you done caused all this pain and ruined all these lives. But then, again, you got prosecutors mm-hmm. who was backing you up. They knew you was lying from the, from the jump, and they helped you lie. Mm-hmm. When they knew you was having sex with uh, these other guys, they told you, when I asked you, just think about did you know at the time? So yeah. the prosecutor knew all of this before my trial. Mm. So when they didn't parole me, when they didn't let me go, and they asked me to plead to a misdemeanor, mm-hmm. I had 13 years left on my sentence. And I was willing to do all 13 left. 
So I walked back to my prison cell. Um, Were I you still, still in Mississippi at the no, time? No, I came back because okay. I came back to go to this. Okay. It's a Rule 40 hearing. That's what they call it. And so I got back here and um, I was just like, okay, I just got to stay focused. I was just locked in on not tripping myself off and, and going down the wrong path. So um, my parole hearing was coming up. Mm -hmm. And my attorney said, they're not going to parole you. Uh, parole, and rightfully so for sex offenders, is you know it's tough to get on. Mm -hmm. You have to go to two-year uh, treatment course, and you got to do all these other things that I said I'm not doing. It. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing any of that because stuff. Because you you did not want to cop to something you exactly. did not do. Exactly, I could not. Like my sister, my fan, my sister, my older sister used to say. Just tell them what they hear, want to hear to come home. Yeah. We just want you home. And I yes. said, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. I can't. I, I couldn't live with myself if I did that to myself. Mm -hmm. I could deal with them treating me like this, but I couldn't do it to myself. Mm -hmm. And so when my lawyers told me they're not going to parole you, I was like, I don't care. I'm not going to mm -hmm. parole anyway. Mm -hmm. But something was saying, go see the parole board. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to talk myself out of it. And I go see the parole board. Yeah. So I talked to Dawn, and I was like, something keep telling me to go see the parole board. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I said, I just want to tell her my story. And she was like, I think you should. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to tell her my story. I had no real thought of ever paroling because I didn't do none of the courses. I'm not doing none of the mm -hmm. courses. I just want to tell her my story. Mm -hmm. And so when I went in there... And how many years had you been incarcerated at that time? Eight. I eight years. Eight years okay. in. Okay. And so I remember going into the parole board. The chair of the parole had his arms folded like this. Mm. And he said, why are we here? Like, they could see what you have to do to parole. Yes. And they see I have done you nothing. You had done none of it. None. So why are we here? And I said, I just want to tell you my story. And I sat down, I looked him in her face, and I told him my story. And when I was done, he was like, you know what? I believe you. Mm. He said, some people don't belong in prison, and I believe you're one of them. Mm. And I was happy with that. So I was just like, thank you, I was happy. I still didn't think I was going to be paroled. And I was like, I know you're not, I can't get paroled. And he was like, no, I'm not going to deny your parole. He said, go get your lawyers and come back. So now comes hope, but there's a ton of stress that comes with hope. Mm. You know, now my stress level is through the roof because now I got hope. And that's powerful what you're saying right yeah. now because with with hope comes stress. Yes, yes. I mean, if not, you have to just adapt to your situation. Mm. Once you adapt and say this is it, mm. then you have to make the best of it. But hope elevates your thinking yes. it elevates your expectation it's like everything on you is set on fire everything exactly. in you is set on fire because you're hoping for something yes you're hoping you got a chance and now the time gets longer the mm. days are much longer mm. so when I go to the parole board the guy who believes me is no longer on the parole board Ooh. When I come back with my lawyer. What, what's the span of time? It was like three months. The parole uh, board had changed. Hmm. But now I have my lawyers, and they're 
presenting my case mm -hmm. to the parole board. Um, the mother had wrote a letter. Um, the stepfather had wrote a letter. Mm -hmm. Friends and family had wrote letters. And we had all the evidence that we had given mm -hmm. uh, the state. Mm -hmm. uh, the parole board said they needed more time and I had to wait three more months. Wow. So I had three parole hearings. And in the third parole hearing, they granted me parole. Mm. And when they said, uh, you know, your parole is approved, it was weird. It wasn't happy. It was numb almost. It was like, I didn't know how to feel. And I looked at my lawyer, um, Brooke Hart, who is a powerful lawyer around this area. Mm -hmm. He was crying. Ooh, wow. And it stunned me that here's this guy over here, little old me. Yeah. He's crying because he helped me. Yes. Parole. Before the, these lawyers, because the Innocence Projects are student and professor, they're not the lawyers. Mm -hmm. But before Brooke Hart and, and William Harrison, before they took the, my case, they wanted to meet me personally. Sure. Even after the polygraph and all that, they still wanted to look me in my face yeah. so they came to the prison and we met and right then after I told them my story they was like we're going to do everything we can mm -hmm. to help you get out mm -hmm. and so um, when they said parole I still had to wait three months now to get out so even after this you I had to go back to yourself had to go back to my cell now you have to wait to be released um, I paroled December 1st uh, 2013 in uh, 2011, I mean, 2011, December 1st, I paroled. Mm -hmm. And walking out of the gates, it was so different than I thought it would be. Mm. It's scary, mm. right? You get out and the movements, you don't think about the little movements and prison teaches you to be hyper-vigilant and be ready for anything. Mm -hmm. And so, I'm out of prison and I'm um, riding in the car was terrifying. Mm. You know, if a car merged, I used to be mm. white knuckling it, thinking I'm about to be hit. Mm -hmm. My son, uh, he was 14 and I went walking and he walks across a crosswalk and I can't force myself to go on the crosswalk. Mm. So I'm trying to go in the crosswalk and so I finally just say I have to just force myself to do it. I, like, like a, my mom, she taught me so much, and I understood mm -hmm. that bravery is not the absence of fear. Mm -hmm. Even though you're afraid, sometimes you have to be brave, and you have to put one foot in front of the other mm -hmm. and keep moving. So I spent a little few hours with my uh, family, mm -hmm. and they was trying to force me to go into this halfway house mm -hmm. instead of letting me parole to my family. I get to this halfway house, and it was so bad that I said, I'm not staying here. I'm not staying here a day. Mm. My first night out, I stayed outside mm. under a tree mm. on the cot in the rain because I would not stay in the house. Because of the condition of it? The condition of it. of it was so bad that I... So one of my uh, close friends that I met inside... He called me that night on my cell phone. And I told him, 
Man, tell him to get my bed ready. I'm coming back. I'm not oh, staying wow. here. Wow. I had made the decision that I was going back to prison because I'm not staying wow. one day in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunate for me, I had met some good people in prison that had some pool that made some calls outside because he told these people and they uh, told other people. And then I was able to move back out of that house. Mm-hmm. But I had given this lady $500. That's all I had to my name. Mm-hmm from my prison account, so I didn't stay in her house. I stayed outside in the rain under a tree on a cot. So I asked this lady for my money the next day, yeah. and she shook me down for $100. Wow. She's like, what you gonna do for me? And she gave me that look, like, what are you gonna do for me? And I'm thinking, mm. wow, you, you really gonna shake me down? All I got is a $500 to my name. Yeah. And I knew if I didn't give it, I'm on parole. Yeah. All she got to do is say something. Yes. And so I gave her $100 out of the 500 I had. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just, you know, trying to just go through the motions, yeah. trying, trying to deal with all the, mm-hmm. all the trauma of um, the PTSD. The, all of that. Everything that's coming. And I had to fight for another eight years. So it took a total of 16 years. So you were released, but you had to fight an additional eight years to be exonerated. To be exonerated. To be cleared. To be cleared. So did the military, uh, they they discharged you, of course, when you were incarcerated. Was it a general or a bad um, conduct? Other than honorable. Mm -hmm. They gave me an other than honorable discharge and just stop my pay and, and mm-hmm. that was it. Did they go back in? Did you appeal and get an honorable discharge? Is that even possible? Yes, I, in, 2000, in 21, uh, 2021, I got my discharge okay. upgraded to uh, a fully honorable discharge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like now I'm able to reap some of the benefits. Yes. Uh, one of the stories that like, it's just a struggle every day, right? Some days are good, some days are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the biggest things that helped me is my first time being out. The Innocence Project meet every year. Yes. So there's a lot of exonerees that get together. Mm-hmm. When I first went there, when I first got out, I went up to this guy and he shook my hand and he was like, how you doing? How long you been in? I'm like eight years with bass in my voice because yeah. I'm fresh off the yard. I'm like, yeah. how about you? And he said, 30. 30. Next guy come up, same conversation. Mm-hmm. He says 28, 20 on death row. I met the first woman on death row. Her and her husband was on death row. They killed her husband before they found out that they were both innocent. Mm. Her husband was executed. She lived. Uh, Some guys, one guy, his son committed suicide when he got locked up and went to prison. So there's a lot of trauma and a lot of pain in that room. And when I was coming back from that trip, I had my head on the window of the airplane and the guy touched taps my shoulder and I look at him like I know you see this do not disturb sign on my face mm-hmm. and he hands me a little note mm-hmm. and there's a little white girl cross had to be about five years old and she handed me a note that says I love you oh my and now I'm like why okay would she, Lord yeah, what you say why would she give me this note right so now instead of thinking about all the trauma I'm thinking about this note that this little girl gave me and then she says um only thing she ever said to me was you can keep it hmm. so he asked her do I get one and she says no so we go to baggage claim 
and I see the father, the parents, and I go up to the father and tell him what his little girl did. And he says to the mother how she raises them. And this little girl came over and gave me the biggest hug and I almost fainted. Mm -hmm. And that changed my life. Wow. Uh, to her, I should have been a big, scary black man. Right. But she sees somebody that needs love mm -hmm. and that was hurting. And she gave me a note that said, I love you. Mm -hmm. And I laminated it and I keep it in my wallet every day. Yeah. Right. And and I remember you were sharing about being in the shower with the razor in your hand and the enemy saying, kill yourself. Yes. And then you, and then God says to you, hold on. I, I mean, this little girl to me was another defining pivotal moment yes. of the demonstration of God's hand on your life. And I know we're running out of time, yeah. um, but I, I want to ask you this last question about dealing with the trauma every day because I heard you say on the um, the Innocence Project Hawaii I think it was where you were talking about just you turned that anger and all that trauma that you felt inside all those years you turned it into something positive and you go to the exonerated group nation mm -hmm. and you serve and that's how you've been able to kind of recover I guess in yes. a way and that's what I'm doing now. That's why I always give back. I go to the UH and I talk to us, uh, lawyers and future lawyers. Uh, I give back and I always try to reach back and get somebody else because I know how it felt wow. when I would see people get exonerated. I was happy for them, but I wanted my turn. Yeah. And so what happens is when they told me that my case was overturned and I was exonerated, mm -hmm. there was a void left. And what you choose to fill the void oh, yes, with is yes. going to determine how you live your life going forward. Yeah. And so I chose to keep fighting because it's crazy. That's why soldiers that got that from combat to Kmart, they still got this heightened level and still yeah. want to fight. Yeah. So I still got this level and I'm focusing it on, I'm going to fight for somebody else. Mm -hmm. You know, he still has a fight, she still has a fight. So I'm going to expend my energy fight from them and yeah. not filling it with alcohol, drugs, yes. because if you go down that rabbit hole, you're going to get lost. And I've seen other exonerees, when we meet other exonerees that went down that hole and yeah. you could see it in their face. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I just decided to try to fight, you know, uh, somebody else's fight, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So we'll leave it at that. I, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I know it couldn't have been easy to share it, and I could feel even some of your your emotion even now in it. But here you are. Yes. Yeah. Here you are, your family with your family, and I, we met your beautiful daughter. That's yes. how we got connected mm -hmm. here in Hawaii. And I just want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Um, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to the show today. We'll leave it right here. As always, I always say that a conversation is the most powerful communication on the planet in these days of ever-evolving technology. It's a conversation that's very powerful. So tune in next time right here on Conversations with Daisy Jones. Make it a great day. Conversations with Daisy Jones. Conversations with Daisy Jones. Conversations with Daisy Jones.
paid C. Jones Conversations with Daisy Jones Hey, let's talk a while She the community voice with a big old smile If you want that truth, don't touch the dial If you want that truth, don't touch the dial Community resource for number one She's the best when it's all said and done So go ahead, call on the phone Man, you're live on the mic with Daisy Jones So let it not miss you, yeah Better than the magazine, bringing life to the issue Having these talks that'll bless you Every conversation will address you Every word tastes good like blessed food This show gon' bless you So get on the phone, have a conversation with Daisy Jones Let's go!